We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Modrovix. Joining me today is Alfonso Pecatiello, author of The Macro Compass. How are you today, Alf? Hey, Tom. I'm very good. And I have to say, you are Italian sound when you say my name and surname. It's incredible. Are you Italian by any means? No, you're not. Huh? But it was really not good. even. I'm not even close, but uh, it's kind of fun to say. And I remember the first time you and I spoke, you trying to make sure I get people's names right is actually something I make sure to to do a bit of my homework on. And I still remember, however long ago it was when we first spoke, how to how to say your name. And it actually kind of reminds me of my time in Italy. So congrats for your Italian accent. Well done. <laughs> Thank you, Al. So in your most recent piece, you start out by saying our base case remains negative earnings per share growth and higher unemployment rate from May, June 2023. So what indicators are pointing you towards this case? Yeah, Tom. So basically, I'm talking about the start of a recession in the US around May, June this year, let's say three to four months ahead. And a recession is characterized by people losing their job. So unemployment rate goes up and companies not increasing their profits. So earnings per share going down. Why am I saying this is my base case? Look, Tom, it's really three different indicators that are pointing that way. The first is the housing market. The housing market has effectively frozen in many jurisdictions, Canada, the US, Australia, now also Europe. And when the housing market freezes, with the lag, it brings down with it any employment related to housing. And, and don't get me wrong, it's not only construction, but it's also brokers, um, mortgage employees, um, ancillary activities around the housing sector, uh, durable goods purchases go down, renovation go down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So to give you an idea why the housing market matters that much, in the US, roughly 17% of total employment is somehow related to the housing market, Tom. And housing sales are down over 40% on a year-on-year basis, 40% down, which means the market is literally frozen. There are no buyers. Definitely no, because mortgage rates are too high. Mm-hmm. House prices are still unaffordable. And sellers are just waiting, which means there is no housing activity. Historically, every time housing activity goes down, unemployment rate goes up, earnings go down. So that's the first. The second is what the Fed is trying to do. They're literally trying to engineer tighter financial conditions, which is macroeconomics jargon for companies need to borrow much more expensive. People don't need to get access to cheap credit, which means as credit is the oiling mechanism of our economic growth, you want to stop that. You want to make sure things slow down. And when they do slow down, earnings contract and unemployment rate goes up. And these financial conditions are now much tighter than they were a year ago. Normally, with a lag, the economy also falls into a recession. And then, actually, the third thing is the reaction that central banks are having to inflation. So the thing is, they're targeting inflation. They want to see it down to 2%, Tom. Not to 3 not to 4 They won't be happy with it. They want to see inflation at 2%. But the problem is, in the macroeconomic cycle, Inflation is the most lagging indicator of all. So they're targeting the thing that comes down last. 
goes up last in the cycle, we have seen growth going up and then inflation only goes up in 2022. And this time we have seen already growth coming in very aggressively and inflation will follow, but will follow only later. So only in the second half of this year. But the Fed is targeting that. So basically, they will keep policy very tight, even if it becomes increasingly clear that the economy is going into a recession. They won't proactively ease. Mm -hmm. They will keep policy very tight. You put all of this together, and the base case is that the US falls into a recession by May, June this year. So, you know, you you recently released a, a free article as well on your Substack. And in it, you kind of, you you introduce this term that, is new to me and that's of immaculate disinflation. So what does that mean and what does that have to do with a recession or soft landing? Great question, Tom. So immaculate disinflation is what the market was pricing until a couple of weeks ago. What is that? That is an environment where inflation comes down very rapidly. So it's disinflation. Inflation moves from 8% all the way to 2%. But we don't fall into a recession. So it's an immaculate disinflationary episode. It's basically la-la land, Tom. It's an environment where the Fed gets exactly what they want, but people don't lose their jobs effectively. Now, why do I say the market was pricing that? Um, you know, but maybe people don't, that I come from um, trading institutional money, especially in fixed income. So I have... Uh, quite some insights on the fixed income market. And if I look at the inflation priced in by traders in fixed income market, Tom, inflation was 8 to 9% a few uh, months ago. It's now 6 to 7. And they are pricing it, listen to that, to fall to 2.5% by late summer. I mean, that would be the fastest decline in inflation ever recorded without a recession. Because there have been instances in the past where inflation fell rapidly, Tom. In 2008, we entered the great financial crisis with inflation at about 4 to 5%. And it fell to zero in three to four months. There was a rapid decline in inflation. Of course, there was a great financial crisis. So inflation came down rapidly. But it took a harsh recession. This time, the market is pricing the same incredibly quick drawdown in inflation back to 2% without a recession. Recession isn't priced. And how do I know the recession isn't priced? It's very simple. First, in a recession, earnings go down. Analyst consensus for earnings this year over the next 12 months is still positive. So if you expect positive earnings, you don't expect a recession. It's very simple. Mm -hmm. Second, the bond market overall is not pricing a recession because if you are in a recession, the Federal Reserve cuts interest rates by three, 400 basis points, Tom. While the bond market is pricing the Fed to go to 5% and then cut back to 3%. But guys, 3% Fed funds rate is not the Fed funds you want to have in a recession. If we are in a recession, the Federal Reserve needs to accommodate. They will cut rates to 2 to 1 even to 0% if necessary. Mm -hmm. And the bond market is not pricing that. It's pricing immaculate disinflation, a la-la land scenario where we get a perfect soft landing. Inflation comes down quick, quick, guys, 2.5% already by summer. Wow, incredible. Great. Well done. No recession, no unemployment rate up, no earnings down. And that's a very optimistic pricing, I think. So what are recession insurance positions and why is the market going after them right now? So look, uh, if you want to price a soft landing, Tom, um, 
What you do as a market participant is you want to sell all the insurance trades. Insurance is expensive. Like, you know, if you want, if your house is on fire, so if you, there is a recession and you want to buy insurance, so you want to buy bonds, you want to buy the dollar, you want to buy gold, well, that's expensive, Tom, because it's already in a recession. People are already piling into the trade. Mm-hmm. But if there is no recession and people feel very comfortable with that prediction, they want to sell all these protection trades. So they sold the dollar, for example, very aggressively. The dollar came down really rapidly against the euro, against the Japanese yen, against gold. The dollar came down very aggressively. Stocks went up. And if you look at what in stock market went up, it's really interesting. Everything that was hammered last year, home builders, unprofitable tech companies, uh, a bunch of garbage high beta stocks, everything went up aggressively. Bed, Bath and Beyond is basically defaulting and went up 90% in a day. I mean, it was we actually up about, the other day, it was up 120% at one point yeah. on the day. What does this tell you, Tom? This tells you it's animal spirits coming back. Because when you become increasingly sure that there's going to be no recession, there is no reason for you to own cash, dollar, and all these protection trades. You sell them, you sell volatility, you sell the dollar, you buy all the garbage stocks you can buy because. You know, inflation is coming down. There is no recession. What's to worry about? And that's actually what my analysis has led me to understand is the market regime that in October last year was assigning about 40% chance to a recession. All of a sudden, the market changed their mind. And now they're really assuming that soft landing, and even in some cases, a bit of a higher growth down the road, that's our strong base case, not the recession anymore. And I do not agree with that take. Mm-hmm. You know, Alf, one of your one of your other recent articles was called Can You Smell the FOMO? And I want to get your take on basically the lesson that the Fed taught the market in March of 2020. You know, there's a lot of investors that I think were caught wrong-footed in that in that scenario and didn't know how to react to it. So with that lesson that the Fed is willing to come in to make sure we have a soft landing as we basically got at that time. And then everything just rocketed back up. And I think there was a lot of people that really wish that they had jumped in with both feet at that time. Yeah. I, it feels to me like the market is, is really waiting for that next opportunity for that to happen. You know, after Powell's speech the other day, we got a 25 basis point increase in rates, which to some seemed like the start of a pivot and or at least a pause. So is that, you know, an, another part of the maybe the animal spirits coming to play here, which is in a way the Fed's own fault for teaching the, the market participants that? Pretty much yes, Tom. So investors have been trained over the last 10 years to do one thing and one thing only by the dip. Just close your eyes, don't think, just buy the dip. Mm-hmm. And why was that? Because inflation was always very low. It was like one and a half, two percent, Tom. So if markets are falling apart, what is the Fed going to do if inflation is still very low? They're going to support the market. They're going to say, guys, come on, animal spirits, wake up, go spend. I'm going to boost your stock market, your house prices. I'm going to make sure that there is a wealth effect flowing around. So you feel that you can go around and spend and boost inflation. That was their objective. Mm-hmm. 
And the market has been trained for that for 10 years, Tom, which means right now the market, the title of the article on the Macro Compass was Can You Smell the FOMO? And exactly because people are really used to this environment, there is a sort of muscle memory. Mm-hmm. And every time there is something that resembles that, they go nuts, they go FOMO, they start buying high beta stuff from profitable companies because they've been trained to do so. What is the main difference this time? It's inflation. It's the fact that inflation this time is still very high. It's coming down and I expect it to come down. But guys, the Fed will not be comfortable with this until the inflation is rock solid at 2%. And Tom, I mean, we're far away from that. If you look at the stickiest component of the inflation basket, those are still relatively resistant around 4% annualized inflation rates. That's double the Fed target. Mm-hmm. And Chair Powell discussed a couple of times this. He likes to use pretty complicated words. I'll try to simplify. The complicated version is core services, X shelter prices. What the crap is that? <laughs> it's basically, look at the inflation basket, guys. There are goods and there are services. Mm-hmm. Goods, we were locked home in 2020, 2021 for most cases. We couldn't spend on services. We bought three laptops and whatever we could spend our money on in goods. Okay. Transition post pandemic, we go back into services. Our economy is services oriented. So what happens? Good prices go down, but the Fed knows that, Tom. I mean, it's, it's okay. They understand it's the transition. There are two more components within the services sector, housing and non housing services prices. Housing prices is basically your rent, effectively. And hey, rents have gone up rapidly last year because the housing market was hot, hot, hot. Now, these rent prices are reflected about a year later in inflation figures. So the Fed knows what we are seeing now in that housing shelter inflation is the result of what was going on a year ago in the housing market. So they're like, yeah, yeah, we know, we know it's hot, 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 but it's just a reflection of stuff a year ago. The housing market has slowed down. So going down the road, this component will also slow down. They know it. They expect it. There is a third component that is what Powell really cares the most about. And this is services prices, excluding housing. Effectively, we are left with the stuff that depends on wages, that depends on how the economy is really feeling about the sticky parts of inflation. Yeah, that's running still at 4% annualized. That's double the Fed target. That subcomponent of inflation. So this is the difference compared to the last 10 years. People are cheering, waiting, like on the edge of their chair. When is the pivot? When is the pivot? When is the pivot? So I can buy everything. Mm -hmm. The reality is, let me spell it for you guys. The pivot is likely to happen when unemployment rate has gone up and earnings have gone down enough, which means we are in a recession. And the Fed will pivot as soon as they understand they have done enough damage to the economy, Tom. But when there is that damage, you sure as hell, you don't want to be buying stuff because people are getting fired. They're losing their job. Risk sentiment will be terrible. Mm -hmm. Earnings will be going down. So trying to anticipate the Fed pivot, it's basically like trying to anticipate a recession and wanting to be long, risky asset going into a recession. That doesn't make much sense, to be honest. But again, people are trained to cheer and to hope for this Fed pivot. You probably will get one when things are really bad. And when things are really bad, you don't want to be long stocks. And and like you say that, the environment, once we get to that point, is now the laggiest indicator that they're acting upon, right? Yes. And and, and so, that means that things are probably really bad by that point. 
incredible. You're like having somebody driving the car and instead of looking in front, they're looking back. And then in front, there is a big wall. And at some point, they're going to hit it. And they will keep driving, looking at their back, Tom, until they literally hit the wall. That's exactly what we're looking at. And then people are telling, nah, the wall actually is pretty soft. Even if we go with the car into it, it's going to be a soft crash, soft landing. You know, it's going to be okay. Maybe we, you know, we, 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 we have a little bit of, of tremble down the road, but actually any forward-looking indicators you see at the macro compass that I am tracking, honestly, it's a data-driven process. I'm not reinventing the wheel, mm-hmm. but looking at macro indicators, the wall seems pretty tough to me, pretty stiff, and that doesn't anticipate a soft landing. At least it's not my base case. They're going to keep their foot on the gas until the wall actually takes out the rear view mirror that they're looking at. <laughs> pretty much. But you know, it's this has been the case already a couple of times in history. I always go back to 2000 because I think it's a very interesting comparison with today. In 2000, do you remember this animal spirit storm? I mean, dot-com bubble, anything with a dot-com after their name was trading at 100 times earnings, 200. If they had any earnings in the first place, these companies, is more, in most cases, they had no earnings. The Fed in 2000 decided maybe the bubble had gone a bit too much, and they started raising rates, which is basically what they have done in 2022. They have raised rates. And then at the end of 2000, the market was wobbly. Also, unemployment rate was a bit wobbly. Data had come down in terms of growth. But the people were still like, no, no, it's going to be a soft landing. You know, it's okay. And in 2001, hell broke loose. A lot of jobs were lost. Uh, earnings dropped by 40% from peak to trough. There was a very long bear market. Remember, Tom? And also remember this bear market in the NASDAQ had a lot of rallies. They were like, vicious rallies on the way up and people always thought the worst is behind us the worst is behind us the worst is behind us the bond the, the stock market basically bottomed three to six months before earnings bottomed and right now we are looking i think at the same trend down in earnings same trend up in unemployment rate. we have literally just started it another thing the federal reserve cut interest rates in 2001 to fight the recession by 475 basis points. You want to call that a pivot? Yes, that is a big pivot. They cut Fed funds from 6.5% to 175%. I ask you, what was the S&P 500 return in 2001, the year when the Fed cut rates by 475 basis points? What do you think it was? I don't know. That's fair enough. Go ahead. The answer is minus 12%. Okay. So the Federal Reserve cut rates by 475 basis points. That will be the equivalent right now of cutting rates to zero mm-hmm. in a year from now. Mm-hmm. Where would you expect? If you ask this to people, where would the S&P trade? They tell you like uh, 5,000, you know, rates are zero. Right. But yes, that's what rates- I was going to ask you, Alf, is, is how does their timing on that rate cut actually coincide with the market drop? And when do they make make those decisions you know i've i've had a couple discussions lately where you know it's not it's not as clear as people think right we already get that that dramatic drop and then the fed starts acting it seems like that's correct so the, the stock market is interesting tom because the stock market doesn't bottom when earnings bottom it bottoms before. Mm-hmm. And why? Because earnings 
you know, they keep declining even after the Federal Reserve has eased policy. But valuations, valuations tend to go up a bit later when the Fed has already eased policy. So effectively, you have to think it like that. The first leg is earnings come down and the Federal Reserve still not easing policy a lot. That's literally what we are seeing right now. Earnings will come down. They are already coming down pretty aggressively. They will probably continue to do so, but the Fed will not be cutting rates, Tom, not in the first leg. Second leg, earnings continue to go down. The Federal Reserve cuts rate. We are, we are in a recession. They do cut rate, like in 2001. Mm-hmm. Stock market still doesn't go up. There is a point in the second leg when earnings continue to go down, but the Fed has cut rates. So it starts to feed in into people that say, okay, you know, this recession maybe is getting fully priced. Interest rates are now 1% instead of 5%. Maybe I feel like I can start buying some stocks again. But that's very much down the road, Tom. And then there is a third leg where earnings continue to drop as a result of basically lagged result of the tighter policy before, but valuations keep rising. So the stock market goes up despite earnings coming down. That's the start of a new bull market generally. This third leg, where I would be feel very comfortable with having stocks in my portfolio, I can't see it happening anywhere before 2024. That's a year from now at least. Mm-hmm. And people are still looking at it today, like, when pivot, when pivot, when pivot, I need to buy everything. And I'm like, dude, just calm down. We are looking at an economy which is slowing down probably pretty aggressively. You're still in the first leg. The Fed hasn't even cut rates the first time, Tom. And they are telling us we want cut rates. We really don't want to do that unless we are forced. And still people are like, when, when, when cut, when cut, I need to buy everything. And I think that approach is unfortunately the result of muscle memory and investors being trained the wrong way for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when when we think about the the correlation of stocks to bonds, right? We just talked about stocks. You you had a line that you recently said as well that understanding the bond market is crucial to becoming a better macro investor. So what do bonds do in, in these scenarios as well, Alf? And and why is it so important to to understand? Yeah. So first, why is it important to understand? The bond market underpins everything in our financialized economy, Tom. In the 70s, that was much less the case. The economy was less financialized. Uh, there was less credit, less debt. Um, there was more an industrial-based economy, a labor-based economy. There was the 70s, Tom, and the bond market didn't matter much. Right now, the story is different. Between private sector and public sector debt, the US, China, Europe, UK, Japan, everybody is running between 300 and 400% debt to GDP, summing up the private sector and the governments. Mm-hmm. All of this debt is basically bonds floating around. So what you're looking at is the price of credit, how expensive or cheap it is to keep oiling this machine where we keep borrowing, Tom. We just lever up. We borrow to try and have some wealth effect, try to replace the growth we cannot generate because we're growing older. We're becoming not so productive. How do we offset that problem is by borrowing. And bonds are basically, bond yields are the price or the, the cost of that borrowing. So when, you, when they become very expensive, you're basically stopping the, the flowing, the credit flowing machine into the economy and vice versa. And the yield curve, for instance, also tells you what is the bond market expecting from future growth and future inflation. Why is the yield curve inverted that much today? 
Because the bond market is saying the Fed is making borrowing costs so freaking expensive, 4%, 5%. We haven't seen these rates in a decade or more, but the economy will not be able to handle this for long. So that means the 5% rate can be year for a year or two, but after that, I will be inverting the yield curve because I expect lower growth and lower inflation as a result in the future of these very tight choking conditions for an economy which is so over-leveraged like ours. So understanding these dynamics and following them is very important to allocate into different assets. And you know, one of the things that I try to, to convey to people every week, multiple times a week, is try to translate for them what the bond market is saying. And right now, it's saying what it is. Guys, real interest rates are positive. An economy that is over-leveraged and has to pay positive real interest rates on this very large amount of leverage they have doesn't have the strength to continue growing. And that's reflected in the back end of the curve. The curve is inverted, reflecting that we're going to have lower growth and lower inflation ahead. An inverted yield curve has hardly, let's say, misforecast a recession. Over the last 50 years, if you look at a blend of indication across yield curves, it's always been right when it comes to very, very slow growth. Will this time be different? I can only say, Tom, this time is different. As my mentor told me, are the four most expensive words in finance. So I'm not going to use them. And of course, we've had an inverted yield curve for a while now, right? And there are different explanations as to why it is, why it isn't, what it means, redefining recession. So, you, you know, piece that together for us if you can, Alf. So look, <laughs> every time there is an inverted yield curve, we always have some policymaker telling us that, yeah, this time is different. It's inverted because of X, Y, Z reasons, Tom. I also remember, and I posted it on uh, on Twitter as well, that in late 2007, the IMF, American banks, and the Federal Reserve were all saying that this is going to be a soft landing. And in 2008, it was a landing, but not very soft. And the same story goes with, yield curve inversions. So people tell something along these lines. Yeah, Alf, but there has been so much QE going on that that's why the yield curve is inverted because the Federal Reserve has bought so many bonds. It has suppressed so much term premium that that's the reason why these yields are so low. And then you put it on a chart. And I did it in the past. I don't know if you can pull it up, but I can describe the chart. It will basically look at Periods of QE charted against yield curve. So you take the QE and you see that when the central bank does QE, the curve does not flatten, Tom, the curve steepens. Vice versa, when they do QT, the Federal Reserve has been doing quantitative tightening. It's been removing liquidity from the system for now. Mm-hmm. What is this? Like seven to eight months. The curve keeps flattening. While the Federal Reserve not only doesn't buy bonds anymore, but it doesn't even roll over the existing bonds they have on the balance sheet. So this idea that QE flattens the curve is empirically wrong. It doesn't work. It's not the case. Long end, the long end of the curve, third-year bond yields, Tom, they reflect the expectation for long-term growth and the expectation for long-term inflation. That's what they reflect. So over the next 30 years, We have labor force growth, population growth in most advanced economies that will be zero at best 
That's the case of the US because we grow old. So we have a lot of retirees. We don't have a lot of young people replacing these retirees. And the US can offset that with a positive net immigration. Canada also to a certain extent, but hey, not everybody can. So if you look at Europe, the UK, Japan, they all look negative. At best, zero. So you don't get any growth from more population being in the labor force. You're not going to get that. Where do you get this growth? Will it be productivity? Well, it doesn't look particularly promising over the last 10 years. Technology has already permeated so many aspects of our economy that we keep getting a bit more productive, but to have broad productivity growth across all industries of our economy to make the difference, we have already done that, guys, in the 80s, in the 90s, where we have gone through a technology technologization of the industrial process that's already being done the big gains from the technology at an in and across industry level are already done now we keep becoming productive but a little bit year by year so where are we going to get this growth long term tom that's why the long end of the bond market tends to reflect these long-term drivers in a very strong way the front end of the bond market is instead controlled much more by the actions of the Federal Reserve. I mean, the Federal Reserve can just say, let's hike interest rates to 8% tomorrow, and the front end of the bond market will need to price that in. They are telling them, basically, what the, what the price of this short-term interest rate should be. The long end doesn't. And that's why looking at these inversions or these inversions is very important. It will remain important, regardless of what the policymaker du jour will tell us that this time it doesn't matter because X, Y, Z, it always does matter. Mm -hmm. You know, you brought something up there, Alf, that you, you recently touched on and tweeted on as well, and that's the running off of the balance sheet and net liquidity decreasing. So why is that ultimately maybe a misleading number? So look, the balance sheet is coming down. The Federal Reserve is not reinvesting 95 billion of securities they mature every month from the balance sheet. So the security matures, they do not reinvest it, which means the balance sheet shrinks by 95 billion a month. That's the asset side, Tom. Then we have the liability side of the balance sheet. As we know, by accounting standards, they need to decrease by 95 billion each. The liability side of the Federal Reserve balance sheet is a very interesting animal. Back in the day, there were basically two main drivers. Reserves, bank reserves, which is often identified as liquidity for markets. Now, bank reserves is basically the money that banks use to transact with each other in simple terms, Tom. So if there is a lot of these reserves going around, then banks feel very comfortable doing a lot of these financial engineering transactions with each other. They, they will provide liquidity for markets, liquidity for the repo market. Everything will be well-oiled generally speaking, in the financial markets. You, re you remove these reserves and the opposite happens. Banks will be like, I'm a bit more conservative now. I will not provide that much liquidity anymore. The other component on the liability side of the Federal Reserve balance sheet is the Treasury general account. So that generally, that is pretty much of a stable number, and it's the amount that the Treasury has deposited at the Federal Reserve. If the Treasury wants to spend some money but doesn't want to borrow, they will take this deposited amount at the Fed, they will take it off and spend it in the real economy. They have it, let's say, as a sort of an umbrella to manage their checking against savings account, basically. Normally, it's a stable number. Sometimes they move it up, sometimes they move it down. Today, we have a third element. It's the reverse repo facility. 
That's a newly created facility by the Federal Reserve that allows money market funds to deposit directly at the Fed. It was created during the pandemic to avoid that interest rates went negative in the US. There was so much liquidity and not so many bonds available that all these money market funds would have bought these shortened bonds and sent interest rates to negative levels. And the Fed didn't want that. So they created a new facility when they said, hey, money market funds, park your money there. It's fine as well. Normally, when the asset side shrinks of the Federal Reserve with quantitative tightening, what shrinks on the liability side is bank reserves. That's the standard. Normally, they go down, so the liquidity markets goes down. And normally speaking, banks are less aggressive and risk sentiment goes down. In this case, we will have, we could have two different uh, other drivers moving, and one has moved instead of bank reserves over the last three months. That's the Treasury General Account. Why? Because the U.S. is walking into this debt ceiling discussion. It's a drama. It's a political farce that we have to do every now and then in the U.S., but it's time. And when that is the case, the Treasury Department cannot issue that many bonds anymore to finance their spending, Tom, which means the only way to keep alive is to take the Treasury General account and draw it down. Take the money from there and spend it to finance your activities. Remember, that sits on the liability side of the Fed. So if the asset side goes down, this time, instead of reserves going down, the liquidity of the market going down, you can take the Treasury General account and make that go down, which is what the US will be doing over the next three to four months until they find a resolution at least to keep financing their activities. The result is that the Fed has been doing quantitative tightening, but net liquidity in the system has been going down less because on the liability side, it's not the reserves taking the hit, but instead it's the Treasury General Account. Mm -hmm. This has made a lot of people excited because it means new QE is going on. This is a stealth form of QE. No, guys, come on. It's not. Every time there is a new narrative around this phenomenon, the reality is as soon as that ceiling is resolved, and it always is resolved, it's just a political discussion at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. The Treasury General Account will be looking empty, and that's not good. So the Treasury Department will need to build it up which means they need to issue bonds just for the sake of pushing up that account. It basically drains all that liquidity that has been injected in the system. It drains it back. And at the same time, quantitative tightening will be running on the background. So between June and December, you will have a double whammy effect on liquidity. You will have the quantitative tightening that keeps running on the background. And now you will need to replenish the Treasury General Account, which is a negative development for net liquidity. Again, it's moving parts. The big picture is the Federal Reserve is withdrawing 95 billion of securities a month from their balance sheet. And ultimately, that removes liquidity from the system. Whether it does it in a straight line or in a zigzag line, like we've been doing now, it still does go down. Mm -hmm. So, Alf, maybe, you know, we've talked about the, let's say, the big ideas that we need to be thinking about and understanding. How do we, and you you mentioned this word there, how do we avoid getting stuck in a narrative and what data should we be paying attention to? As always, my mentor comes to mind. Uh, he used to say, Alf, always follow a data-driven process. Have your macro process, follow it and invest accordingly. You can be wrong, but it's much more expensive to get married to a narrative 
And that divorce is very expensive because you'd never want to get out from the trade. You have an ego attached to it and it's, it ends up cost you a lot of money, normally speaking. So how do you avoid doing that? Well, I think first of all is self-awareness and training yourself, Tom, to think that, you know, really be detached, don't, don't have an ego attached to a trade. Second, which makes everything much easier is build a macro process, a data-driven macro process. So there are, uh, many indicators I follow um, that I've put up together and created blends of these indicators to guide me through the noise, basically. And they go from the housing market to forward-looking indicators of unemployment to these surveys. There are a lot of these surveys being released, the famous PMIs. If you look under the hood, you will find something like new orders. So are the CEOs feeling strong about activity going forward or not, for instance? You'd not only focus on the US, but look outside the US. Let's look at Asia. Asia is a strong engine of global growth, China in particular. But Chinese data are not very reliable. So let's look close by South Korea, Taiwan. They have strong relationship with China. When their numbers go up, it generally means China is somehow accelerating their economic activity. Vice versa, it's going down. So you have to keep an open mind and test all these indicators, see what predicts best what. And then be able to put all of this together into an investment process. Sounds easy. It's not that easy, but uh, at the Macro Compass, it's really what I strive to do for people. Translate for them what's going on in macro and markets in plain English. Okay, maybe with an Italian accent. Fair enough. Can't do much about it. <laughs> and put all of this data-driven process available to them in simple ways to understand and also build investment portfolios with it. That's all that I try to do. Mm -hmm. Another another piece of that is looking for episodes of extreme market conviction. So what does that mean, Alf? So look, um, Tom, markets always price in probabilities. People think that they see one price on the screen, and that's what the market believes 100% to be the case. No, that's, that's a collage of different regimes with a different probability being attached. One interesting thing that people can do is to look at what is the probability of a certain regime being priced? Rather than look just at one point, dissect it. Look at what is the probability of this, that, and that. Why is that important? It allows you to have an understanding when things are getting stretched. When people are assigning too much conviction, they're too complacent about a certain environment. I'll give you an example. With this analysis on the macrocombus, I think a week or two weeks ago, we realized that the equity market was getting too convinced that the soft landing was about to get there. Now, do I have a crystal ball to know that that's not going to be the case? No, but if the market is pricing 70, 80% probability of a certain environment, Tom, then your risk reward in going against that conviction is generally pretty good because it doesn't take that probability to go to zero for you to make money, but just to adjust back to a more reasonable level. So we got short and we made some money. Now, having this process where you can dissect probabilities, I think it really helps um, finding good risk-reward trades. Absolutely. And, you know, it really seems that that's what we need to be really focused on at this time is risk versus reward. Because, you know, as I as I said in, in my previous interview here that I recorded this morning, there's so many big investors that have never seen such a complicated investing landscape. So 
you know, thanks for your time today in trying to help us make a little bit more sense of it all. Tom, it's a pleasure. And I have to back you up on your last sentence. Look, um, the time to be able to buy some stocks and some bonds and some gold and go to sleep, which literally that's what people needed to do for the last 10 years. You know, you just bought a bunch of stuff, went to sleep, and you woke up a year later and your portfolio was up 10% every single year, Tom. That was literally what, what, got, what, what was going on. That environment is gone. There are so many uncertainties, so many cross um, hairs, so many geopolitical risks as well out there, Tom, that, you know, you need to be an active macro investors. You need to understand macro. And uh, I really hope that this interview inspired a few people to, you know, get their hands dirty, understand, build the process and really not be a passive macro investors because that, that could be, that could be a risky thing to do for the next five to seven years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Of course, you're you're now available at macrocompass.com, Alf, and on Twitter, always great stuff, at MacroAlf, right? Yes, Tom. And uh, I also would like to thank you for the great work you do at Palisades. It's a very good channel. Keep it up. A lot of good information for people out there, all for free. I mean, it's great what you do. Really, thank you. And for people that want to find me, the macrocompass.com, and you'll basically find macro and market developments translated in plain English with a process behind and portfolio so that we can try and build a robust portfolio together and understand what's going on in macro and markets. That's all I want to try and do. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Tom, again for having me and keep up the good work at Palisades. Thank you very much, Alf. I really appreciate that and keep up the good work and we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah. Ciao. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.